listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, just a note that this episode talks in depth about grieving when someone dies of suicide. So if you're not in a place to hear that, please skip this one. If you or someone you know needs support, you can call the National Crisis Line at 988 or text HELLO to 741-741. There's no shortage of descriptors for grief. Grief is a process. Grief is a journey. Grief is a roller coaster. Grief is messy. And my personal favorite, which hasn't gotten much traction yet, but just might after this, grief is like getting tossed into a centrifuge with no off button. No matter how you personally relate or don't to these attempts to articulate grief, a few through lines stand out. Grief is ongoing, ever-changing, and mostly it does what it wants when it wants. For Charlotte Maya, author of the new memoir, Sushi Tuesdays, there's the ongoing nature of grief and also the ongoing nature of trying to make sense of why grief showed up in her world. In 2007, Charlotte and her husband, Sam, were raising their two small children and doing all the things that raising two small children entails. One morning, Charlotte took the boys, who were in first and third grade, to a soccer game and then for a hike. Her husband, Sam, who had stayed home to rest, left the house and took his life. In those early days of grief, Sam's death came as a complete shock. As is true for most people who have someone die of suicide, Charlotte didn't understand why. And Sam, he was the one person she wanted and needed to talk to about it. Charlotte ended up in the place that so many people who are grieving a suicide death end up, having to accept that she would never really know the full story of why. Even in that, though, questions continue to arise, especially as her kids have grown into adults with their own evolving understanding of mental health and suicide and grief. So for Charlotte, the never-ending reality of grief includes the ongoing relationship with the question of why. Charlotte's book, Sushi Tuesdays is real and raw and takes readers along through the early days of grief, days that were filled with anger and confusion and sadness and trying to do the thousand and one things people have to do when someone dies. It also chronicles how Charlotte learned to support her two boys in their very different experiences of grief and how she fell in love again with a man whose wife had died, giving her the opportunity to learn how to parent two other children who were also grieving. The title of the book, Sushi Tuesdays, is closely connected to how Charlotte learned to care for herself through this intense grief, but I'm going to let her tell you that story. Charlotte, welcome to Grief Out Loud. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Jenna, thank you so much for including me on the podcast. And I know we're going to talk a bunch about your new memoir, Sushi Tuesdays. And as always on Grief Out Loud, we like to begin with the person who kind of brings a guest into this conversation. So when you think about your husband, Sam, what do you think about? Now I think about how young he was. 
he was 41. He, the, 41 always seemed young, but now I'm in my mid fifties and I was younger than Sam. And it just seems impossibly 41 seems impossibly young. Uh, I think also just about how kind he was and how much he's missing. Our kids were six and eight when he died and he died by suicide, uh, which is a, a complicated kind of a death. And the kids are 22 and 24 now. And it just makes me sad how much he's missed. Of all of their milestones growing up and their experiences, positive and maybe challenging, just yeah. all of it as a parent. All of it. How would you describe those early days after Sam's death? Like what, looking back on it now, what stands out as the the hardest part? Although all the parts are hard, it's hard to pick the hardest. But when you look back at it from this perspective... Well, the shock of his death, we had no idea that he was suffering so much. I, I I, knew he had back pain. I knew he had job stress, but I did not think he was suicidal. I, you know, a lot of those things are normal. Job stress is normal. Back pain is not unusual. And Sam had suffered from back pain since he was a teenager. So in my estimation and my knowledge of him, it, it didn't seem aberrational or off. But those early days were just so shocking. I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. I lost 25 pounds in the first three months after his death. I didn't sleep for the first three days until a friend brought over, a friend who's also a medical doctor, brought over Xanax. And I didn't sleep very long, but uh, even a couple hours worth of sleep made me a better human, better parent, better just widow, I guess. It, I think the shock of all of it and the guilt was excruciating because I because I had missed the signs that I could see only in retrospect. But as we were living our lives up until that point, I I didn't I, I missed it. I missed any any kinds of signs. You know what stands out, Charlotte, in reading your book, and I know you're writing it kind of reflectively, right? Looking back at that time. But in those early days, at least how you describe them, so much shock and so much confusion, but then also like so much clarity about what you needed to do almost in every moment. What's your take on that? That's a great question. It's hard to know, I think, in advance how you're going to respond to something you can't imagine. When I was in that moment, the police officers who came to let me know of Sam's suicide gave me some really powerful, good advice. They said, we will tell the children that their father died, but you have to tell them how. And we recommend that you tell them the truth because you do not want them to find out from somebody else. And at a time when nothing made sense, that made sense to me, that honesty, that transparency. And it's a little counterintuitive because there's so much shame and stigma surrounding suicide. And the children were so young. I mean, when I sat down with them to tell them that their father had died, the three of us fit in one chair. We used little words, sick, sad, daddy died. Um, but I just think that that advice to be completely honest and transparent I didn't tell them, of course, all the details when they were six and eight, but that conversation has continued. They're 22 and 24 now, and that conversation still continues with bigger words, physiological, psychological, depression. They 
and now the children teach me things as well. It's it, it, it's an ongoing process, but in those very early moments to have that confirmation that honesty was a important path forward was very helpful. And it, 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 it was in tune with how I like to do things. So that made sense to me, but I was terrified. I was terrified that I would be isolated from my community, that I would be um, ostracized. But what I found was the opposite when I was honest and when I was just very real about what had happened, what I knew, what I didn't know, what I found instead was connection and a community that continued to hold me in that dark and dreadful place. And having that community that shows up in such a clear and present way can be a bit unique, you know, for people who have had someone die really of any cause, but particularly of suicide or homicide or substance use, some other death Mm. that tends to be stigmatized. And I remember there's a teen who came to the Dougie Center a long time ago who said, we asked the question, like, what's different about having someone die of suicide? And he said, well, the one thing that's different, there's so many more ways for people to be insensitive about it. (laughs) I was like, you write all the books, like you got it. (laughs) It's a brutal one. (laughs) And I wondered, you know, outside of the community who really could show up for you, like, what was your experience with that kind of reality for a lot of people who have had someone die of suicide? A lot of the cliches and common things that people say really don't work in the context of suicide. For example, one of the things that the religious community would say was, he's in a better place. And my six-year-old said, mommy, if daddy's in a better place, shouldn't we go too? And which is horrifying to think about that in the context of suicide, that we are landing in a better place and that that's the way to find peace. So I think that the teenager was very insightful. Just there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that do not work in the context of suicide. It's so complicated. It's so confusing. The person that you love and you grieve and you miss is also the person you're pretty mad at. Now, can you say more about the the way anger played a role in your experience? Well, I was very angry. I was heartbroken, but I was also very angry. Anger has an energy to it. And in some ways, that energy really served me, energy that took me out for a run or energy that I would use to write or to speak up. I think that that is a very positive use of energy, especially when you're angry. It's just such a confusing death and and the things that you wish for, the things that I wished for. I couldn't get, right? I, I I didn't understand why and I couldn't talk to Sam about it. He was the one person who had any answers. He's still the one person who might have any answers. And grappling with that why is maddening because we don't get to know why. I never got to, there's no one reason. I, I have a much richer understanding at this point of what Sam might have been suffering but I will still never know. And so kind of coming to an acceptance of that not knowing is is hard. In the book, you write about that kind of pursuit of the answer to the question, why? Almost like a venture that you have gone on. 
And I know for adults who are parenting kids, oftentimes they need to come up with some kind of why or some element of why to help kids. And what did you discover kind of in your adventure to unearth the why? I think for me, it's helpful to understand suicide and depression as an illness. It is just as it can be just as fatal and de- devastating as diabetes, as a heart attack, as well, I usually use cancer or diabetes or a heart attack as a, as a comparison. It just looks uglier from the outside. It looks like a choice, but mental illness is an illness. And then when we understand, when we understand suicide as an illness, then it helps us sort of frame what that experience might have been for him and what it is for us. Suicide, as you know, is the 10th leading cause of death in this country, but we don't talk about it. It's the second leading cause of death for the age group 25 to 34 and 10 to 14. And talking about it is the one thing we know makes a difference. So developing a fluency around suicide, it's a hard word to say out loud, but it's easier to say it out loud than it is to live it. And that's where my anger has sort of taken me. I'm not so angry anymore, even though I might have moments of anger now and then. Mostly I have moments of being mystified that this could have happened, even though it's it, Sam died in 2007. So it's been a long time, but there's still moments of there where it takes my breath away. I think, really? He's gone? And he killed himself? There's still those moments that seem impossible. I know you talked about the day that Sam died. You know, the police officers were like, honesty is the best thing you can do for your kids in this situation. What else did you instinctively do to support your two kids? I think I used words that were very clear. I didn't use euphemisms like he passed on or we lost him. I think that can be very confusing for young children because if I lost daddy, what if I lose them? Like how irresponsible a parent could I possibly be if I lost (laughs) their other parent? So I think it's important to be really clear with children and to answer the questions that they're asking kind of like when we talk about sex with kids, you don't talk about all the details when they're six, but if they're asking questions, then I think it's important to answer the questions that they're asking. I felt like my kids too, they know that they could trust me for honest answers to life's hardest questions. And so that honesty not only gave them information, but also supported our relationship that as as a mother-child team, they knew they they could count on me for honest answers, even if the answer is I don't know, because that's an answer too. So we always talk about how grief is different for everyone. And that is very true within a family system. So I'm wondering, you know, I talk to a lot of parents who are like, how do I take care of my grief and take care of my kids? And my kids all need different things. So how did you navigate like three individuals grieving the same person, but in really different ways with different needs? It is really hard. I am lucky, as you point out, I had friends and family around who could really help me. I had a really good therapist. And when it felt like the kids needed their own therapists, then we did that too. Not only is grief different for each of us, grief changes over time. We joke in our house that we don't hide the skeletons in our closets. We display them on the piano and keep them up on the walls and the 
over the fireplace. I don't know. I think as a parent, children teach you what you need to know about them. Children come so individual to begin with. And I just really tried to listen to each of my children as they were going through their process. I had one who refused to say what we called the D words, dead and daddy. And the other one, of course, naturally wanted to talk about dead daddy all the time. So this was it was hard and impossible in some ways. If I was home alone with the kids, which mostly I was, and one wanted to talk about dead daddy and the other did not, we would have to find our way through those moments. And, you know, maybe we wouldn't talk about daddy right then, or maybe we would go to a different room to talk about daddy and there are different ways to manage it, but every day is different and each child is different and just giving ourselves you know, the space to make mistakes and come back. For example, I won't say it on your program unless it's allowed, but, you know, we use a lot of what we called Uncle Jose's colorful words because (laughs) those are very clear little words for very big feelings. And I was okay with it because sometimes, you know, sometimes kids need to be able to say that stuff out loud. And there's a sort of a power in being able to use those words. And I did say, you know, don't use them at school because I can't save you from the principal, but, but you're safe, you're safe to use them here at home. And I think kind of developing some flexibility around some of those things is really important. And then also some stability around things as much as we could like bedtime or routines and trusting ourselves too. just listening and trusting. It's very, it's always changing. I was thinking back to what you said of how like anger was such a force for you, especially in those early days after Sam's death. And as adults, we often have a little bit more understanding of anger and like what to do and how to express it in ways that aren't going to harm other people. Not always, but for the most part, right, we have a little bit more access to that. And kids, six to eight year old kids, like anger is just that big feeling running through. And I know you mentioned, you know, the colorful phrases that the kids would able to use as like shorthand for their big emotions. But were there other things that you found were helpful in, I don't want to use the word containing, because that's not accurate for what we want to be doing with our anger and grief, but helping your kids hold space for their own anger? Yeah, I think holding space is a great way to talk about it. They would. So for example, one night, one of my younger kids, my younger son um, was destroying, dismantling a Lego spaceship he had built with Sam um, not that long ago. And, you know, so I kind of had to go through my mental checklist. Okay. He's not hurting himself. He's not hurting his brother. He's not hurting me. The Legos can, I I can fix them again. If we have to, it'll take a long time, but we can do that. Um, but, but he's not breaking anything that can't be fixed or just discarded, right? The Legos, yeah, if they get broken, you know what? It, that, none of that is the end of the world. So I kind of had my little checklist of things. Okay. Not hurting himself, anybody else and whatever he's breaking doesn't really matter that much. And so we broke a lot of Legos and a lot of rocks into big rocks from big rocks into little rocks. And with a Lego, you know, the, the Lego was so powerful because the next morning he came to me and um, he said, mom, where's the, where's the Tupperware of Legos? They had been all, they were shattered all over the floor and I collect them into a Tupperware. And the next morning he said, okay, where are they? Cause I want to build my spaceship back again. I thought, okay, this sounds good. So he started building his Legos and he, um, 
I said, do you need any help? And he's like, no. So I went and answered an email and, and he's still building. I'm like, how's it going? He's like, oh, it's really good. And so I switched out the laundry and then um, he comes to me with this new little spaceship and he's showing me, you know, how kids, how creative and wonderful they are. He's like, look, mom, it has an escape pod and rocket blasters and it's better than it was before. And it was just such a great metaphor for how shattered our life was and how there was hope in rebuilding the life. And, and I do think anger does have that momentum with it that can be, you know, if we do hold space for that anger and don't let it fester and destroy us, if we do hold space for that anger, it that momentum and energy can carry us through to the next place. Anger was a place I was very happy to visit, but I didn't want to live there. I was definitely okay visiting angry because it does stink. How could he not be here? And it, it and it is suicide has a flavor of abandonment. When the six year old was sixteen, he was angry all over again, and now he was six foot two and he was playing varsity football. And so that angry was a totally different experience for him at sixteen than it was at six. And he said, everyone says daddy was such a nice guy, but I think he's kind of a jerk. And you know what? The child was right. Like, okay, you're right. And so I, I, I tried really to stay with them again, holding space for those big, scary 16 year old feelings. That's a little scarier than the Legos, but also holding that moment and honoring that experience of having been abandoned by the person who was never supposed to leave because it stinks. And now he's about to graduate from college with a degree in psychology and he wants to be a therapist. And he was working with a six-year-old recently. And he says, mom, I totally get it. There's no way daddy would have left willingly if he wasn't ill. And so that's why, you know, the grief, grief doesn't end. There's no date certain on which it's over, right? He's going to think about it again when he's 41. And then when he's 42 and he's older than his father ever got to be. And so I think holding space, not just for what it is right now, but what it will also be is really important. And we, we get stronger, we get better, we get more fluent in being able to have these conversations and feeling safe in those emotions. I often think of emotions as a sign, like a signpost, like a directional sign of, that something's not working. And anger is often because something's unfair and it is unfair. So how do we find our way through that unfairness of it? I'm really appreciating that in all of your kids' expressions of grief, big and small and in between, it, there seemed to be a lack of effort to corral them in any one direction, you know, to really, like you said, be there with them. And so they had a lot of space and freedom to like come to their own conclusions in a lot of ways. And that's something that I see serving kids as they get older and they do become teenagers and young adults and they're needing to figure things out on their own. Um, so we've talked a bunch about your kids. Let's talk a little bit about you. And the title of your book is Sushi Tuesdays. And that's really directly linked to 
how you learn to attend to your own grief needs. So tell us about that. Yes, the title Sushi Tuesdays comes directly from my days of self-care. I had a yoga class on Tuesdays that I really liked. And then my therapist had a recurring slot open up on Tuesdays. So Tuesdays became really my day for self-care. And as a single parent with two little kids, I needed that time for myself because if any, you know, the train was going to come off the tracks if I didn't have that time to tend to myself. So Tuesdays became what I called my Charlotte Shabbat. And I'd really think about what does Charlotte need today? Do I need to go back into bed and cry? Cause that's allowed. That's real. Do I want to take myself for a pedicure or out to lunch? And sometimes I'd take myself to sushi party of one. I didn't make appointments to make, to meet any friends, no doctors, no lawyers, no CPAs. It was just my time for Charlotte to really listen to what I needed to do, go for a walk, meditate, take a, a breath. So sometimes I take myself out to sushi. And um, so Sushi Tuesdays became sort of the 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 way it was the reason it's the Sushi Tuesdays is the title is that I had spoken at a children's grief conference in 2008. And one of the other speakers on the panel was a chaplain who said, when you write your book, you should call it Sushi Tuesdays. And so she was the one who kind of put that pin in Sushi Tuesdays. And what I hadn't thought about when I, so first I started a blog before I started writing my book. First I started a blog and I called it SushiTuesdays.com. And one of Uncle Jose's colorful words is right in the middle of Sushi Tuesdays when it's in a URL form. And if I had seen that in advance, I probably would have edited it out. But after the fact, I thought it's kind of perfect because that's what Sushi Tuesdays was, is dealing with the mess in the middle and just whatever the mess is today, that's what it is. And there's a certain level of equanimity or acceptance in just kind of dealing with the mess of grief because it is messy. One of the things that you wrote about that I don't think it's talked about very often, particularly for folks who've had partners or spouses die, is the like grass is greener situation of is it better or worse to have your person die or to leave you or to get divorced or be a widow? And I mean, people do the grass is greener thing all the time in grief. Like, is it better to have someone die suddenly or better to have someone die after a long term illness? And it's usually whatever you didn't have looks better until you hear from people who had that and you're like, well, okay, maybe it's not just different. Um, so what, yeah. How did you kind of grapple with that? Yeah. I think it all stinks just in different ways. The the better or worse, there's no winner in that game of like, Oh, what's your tragedy? Like, you know, it's just, it's just a weird warped way that it, also a natural way that we kind of are inclined that way. I did feel like most of my closest friends were my single mom friends, most of whom were divorced and not widowed, although I, I had a few widow mom friends as well. I don't know, for me, the kids which wished over and over again that we had just gotten divorced, even though that wasn't something we were contemplating. But I think this fantasy of at least daddy then would be alive and and I sort of had that fan fantasy too. Like if we, if you had to leave me, just leave me. And then I could just wish you were dead, but you would actually be alive for the kids. And that somehow felt better. But it is, 
it's it's that weird magical thinking. I just think it all sucks in its own unique ways. Um, as as you know, this isn't really a spoiler that I I did accidentally fall in love again with the most eligible widower in town who also had two kids. And because we had both been widowed, we were able to scoop up all four kids and really be sort of um, just a, a hold space for all of them, but be a really kind of consistent space for all four kids. And in some ways that was just really lucky, but the kids still all are missing a parent. And that's why it was really important to me when I wrote the book that the book didn't end with a wedding because it's not a fairy tale. The grief still continues. We have Sam's pictures all over the walls and Debbie's pictures all over the walls. And and that's important because Sam and Debbie are part of how we arrived to this beautiful blended family of six. But there's still conversations about missing Sam, missing Debbie, it it just there's no expiration date on grief and the fact that we have all experienced that grief helps all of us to kind of understand each other and and be a little bit gentler with each other you know charlotte one thing i'm wondering about is you learned a lot about parenting your kids and their grief and then when you met your now husband you got to learn about what it was like to parent to other kids who were grieving somebody different. And I wonder what you learned in that experience. One of the things I learned, one of my stepsons, when he really needed me, I don't know if he did this consciously or not, to be honest, he would start talking about his mother. And I think I was, and I was always open to those conversations. I wanted to hear about her. I wanted to know, you know, about her, her, sports. She played basketball. Actually, she played all the sports, but basketball was her, her great love. And, um, you know, she had loved diet Coke or just whatever things like I, I was totally in it to talk to him about whatever he wanted to talk about when he was talking about his mom. And I think he didn't have a lot of people he could talk to his mother about. And it was one of the ways that he sort of tested the, the waters to see if I was safe if if i would stay with him in that space and i considered it a huge honor to be in that space with him to hear about his mother and it is interesting cuz now i have four kids all of whom grieve differently and some are more stoic some are more chatty and again it still changes over time i think just being willing to show up in those spaces to say the names of the people that we loved and lost. I think with suicide, there's a risk that the stigma and shame will reduce our loved one to those last moments of their life in a way that doesn't seem the same with cancer or diabetes or even an accident or homicide. But for everybody, there's just a real comfort in being able to speak about the person that we loved and still love. Love remembers. Love and grief are two sides of the same coin. So when, as long as we keep loving them, we may keep grieving them. And that's not a bad thing. It, that it keeps that love and that um, relationship alive at some level. I feel like too, in that, 
answer, um, Charlotte, it made it sound kind of like uh, nice and easy getting to know your two-step kids. And I just want to say for listeners, like, it was not easy. There was a lot of like, I need you, but I'm also pushing you very far away. Well, the last woman he had fallen head over heels in love with died. Like, who wants to go through that again? That's a very natural inclination. So yeah, blending a family, (laughs) blending a family is also an ongoing process. It is not the Brady Bunch, even though our oldest is Gregory, Um, but it is beautiful. And it's, you know, it's super fun and wonderful, but yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. Walking into step-parenting teenagers was not so easy. You know, the grief changes over time and your kids change over time. And I wonder, are there ways that you see Sam showing up in your kids as they get older? And then what is that like? Yes, it's it's a little humbling and a little unnerving when I'll hear one of the children, for example, laugh exactly the way his father did or interact with a little kid the way that his father interacted with young children and indeed that them. And it's, I don't know, I just think life is bigger than we can know. I I think for me, it just taps me into a mystery uh, that's larger than life itself that we just can't know. And I don't, I don't like not knowing. Just let me be clear about that. I, I, I'm someone who likes to know. I like lists. I like things tidy and organized. If grief was a homework assignment, I would have been really good at it. This by this due date, that by another due date in order. Let's see. First denial. Okay. Check. Then acceptance. Okay. Check. It doesn't work that the way. It is a huge, big mess. There's no outline. There's no deadline. There's no timeline. Um, that is really infuriating in a lot of ways. So just to be clear, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of not knowing. I would rather know most of the time. Um, but there's something about watching the, the young men who are now taller than their father was doing some of the same things. Sometimes it just reminds me what a lovely man Sam was. Sometimes it, it you know, it just, it, it, it frightens me because if we're alive, we are subject to all manner of illness, physical and mental. And so sometimes it frightens me. And I have to remind myself that especially as young men, it's their job to do their own healing work. I can't do it for them. That can be scary too, that letting go piece. But then my therapist reminds me, Charlotte, you get to do your work. So that's where I have to start. And meditation is often a place where I start. So I just notice, okay, wow, that really looked like their father. And take a breath and and try to just sort of tap into the, the beauty of that. I was going to say, Charlotte, when you said, you know, I have to, as a mom, remember, they have to do their own healing. I was like, you have a very good therapist. <laughs> That's not an easy, not an easy conclusion for most adults to come to like someone else is in charge of their own process. That's not an easy sell. (laughs) Well, who doesn't want to put their kids in bubble wrap and keep them safe on the sofa? I mean, it, it, I think as a parent, that's a pretty natural reflex to want to protect not just our children, but everybody that we love. And it doesn't, life doesn't work that way. 
You mentioned that you really like lists and things being neat and tidy. Uh, and you write about how, for you, at least the calendar days of grief, you know, like Sam's birthday or the anniversary of his death or maybe your wedding anniversary, those in some ways were almost easier because you could brace for them. But mm-hmm. then there were the unanticipated days when grief just sucker punched you. And those were really tough. And I, well, I have two parts to this question. One, if you could maybe describe yeah, how you navigate those and if you've had a, a more recent one. I think one of the things that I know now is that even when I'm sucker punched, even when I find myself breathless and teary, there's a part of me that knows that that moment is going to end, even if it sticks around for an hour or a day or a week, that it's not permanent. And so that movement of grief is comforting, even though in the moment it is pretty breathtaking. I'm trying to think if I had a recent, the one that's coming to mind is I was speaking at a book group who had read my book, Sushi Tuesdays, and and many of the people in this group are people I know and who knew Sam. And one of the one of the women was just in tears for the entire hour that we were talking about the book. And she just kept saying, Sam was just such a nice man. He was just such a nice man. And that was very comforting and validating, but it also was it brought me right back to those early days where it was just impossible to believe that he was gone and really impossible to believe that he had taken his own life. Like it, a lot of other things would have made a lot more sense. And I think the mantra I have repeated to myself over and over again since 2007 inhale, exhale repeat as necessary and just bringing myself back to that moment can be very, very helpful. I have a girlfriend who gave me a little bracelet the first Christmas after Sam's death and it's a silver bracelet and it is battered and beaten and tarnished and it says breathe on it. And I wear it every single day. I've worn it every single day since 2007. And in those moments, I just kind of put my hand on that bracelet and take a moment to breathe. In sharing that experience, Charlotte, I was thinking about how, you know, we've mentioned many times today that grief is ever changing, ever evolving. And I go back to that original question we talked about, the why, and how there's no like endpoint destination when someone has died of suicide, of the why, that there's just kind of a continued revisiting of that why at different places in our own lives, and it can mean something very different. And so it seems like an example of that. Yeah, something I find myself saying um, every now and again is the suicide autopsy never really ends. Like there's always moments when you think, oh, did I consider, did I consider addiction? Like, I don't think so. But like, there's those moments where you see something on the news. It might be something on the news or it might be somebody else's suicide. And I think, oh, was it that? Like, there's no, there's no like tidy official county form embossed with the 
seal of the state of California or any state for that matter, <laughs> that just, you know, gives a definitive answer. And, and that is hard to live with. Totally. I have a friend who, um, whose father had died by suicide when my friend was 10 and his brother was eight. And I had forgotten that that was part of his past. We were friends from college. And then after Sam died, of course, this became a real source of connection for me and this friend. And he said, Charlotte, grief is like a heavy sandbag at your feet. And if you ignore it, if you don't pick it up, it will trip you for the rest of your life. But when you do pick up that sandbag, you will see that there's a little hole in the bottom. And that's where the grains of sand start to fall out. And two things are going to start to happen. One, the sandbag gets lighter. And two, you get stronger. And I have found that analogy very, very helpful. And facing into whatever it is, for me, was more empowering than ignoring it. Well, Charlotte, I'm just feeling very thankful for your time today and for the book that you wrote, Sushi Tuesdays, which I tell this to listeners all the time. I read a lot of books around grief, and occasionally there's one that really just, I got to read to the absolute end, and yours was in that category for sure. I just appreciated the like directness that you wrote uh, your book with, which I think comes through in talking with you today. Are there particular places you want to just tell listeners right now of how to connect with you? Yeah, my website is charlotte-maya.com. That has and that has all my social links. I'm on Instagram probably most often. That's Charlotte Maya Writer. And um yeah, mostly the website charlotte-maya.com and that's where you can connect with me and see some of my other writing and um thank you so much for including me today. This is such a pleasure. I'm such a big fan of the work that you do and that the Dougie Center does and um, children's grief, I think, is sometimes really marginalized and forgotten. And so I think this is such an important uh, mission that you have. Well, thank you again, Charlotte. And listeners, the book Sushi Tuesdays is out now, so you can go get your own copy and visit Charlotte's website. And I'll put all that in the show notes. And thank you, as always, to each and every one of you who tunes in, who shares the show with friends and family, uh, to those of you who reach out to me and let me know what the show means to you. If you'd like to do that, because I do love to hear from you, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. It's D-O-U-G-Y dot That's also our main website where you can find all the information about our local programming, our free downloadable tip sheets, activity sheets, workbooks, and all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud. Our show is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time.